Oh, there's so much blood here. And Ray Walston. Damn it. Still not enough you know, light. with a, one of the great bodies of work of all time, but, you know, to me, he'll forever be Mr. Hand from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> Used to call him Mr. Hand on the set occasionally. Oh, yeah. Ray had a great sense of humor. I mean, he would be very cranky. Yes. He wore sunglasses that he had black tape over because his his vision had been ruined, he said, by stage lights over the years and movie lights. And so he would come on the set and he'd be bitching and moaning about things. God damn it. Really foul mouth. God damn motherfucker. Yeah, and, yeah. It's that such Ray. And then I would bust him. I'd say, ooh, looks like Ray woke up on the wrong side of the bed. A little cranky today, huh? And, he'd, oh, and he'd be all chipper again. Yeah, he's, I can remember... Uh, at the catering truck, he just would pack every pocket in his wardrobe full of silverware. <laughs> I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and take it back to his trailer. I think Ray probably walked away with a couple thousand dollars worth of forks in the show. Uh, as I look and think about what Stephen King is saying, uh, the, the, the miraculous and the ordinary are one, in a sense. And... Um, and he's saying, and she, I like the fact that he um, brings us to, uh, the, he brings us to the demon, uh, the demon in the world, the demon in ourselves. He, um, as well as the angel, he, he, he blends the two. He brings, uh, the, and, and the horror of the contradiction. You know, and so it, and that's that's upsetting to in a sense to us, and and I love this scene where Mother Abigail and all the revelations are coming true. She's standing there just waiting for them all to come, and that this just waiting for everybody to come, just like just as in the dream, and that she senses which we the reality of these moments when she meets the people that she knows understand and uh, and are following her and believe what she says and those who are her enemy you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, the fact that she recognizes that Where the hell is everybody now what do you have a favorite scene that you did in the in this show I think my favorite scene is when Nick comes and I start telling him about this land that I have to leave. Your past. And the past and how I got it. And, and you know, this was the first time that I've ever been fortunate enough to redo a scene. Um, or whether where the production allowed me that privilege, I was deeply grateful. I told my husband, I said, "Arcee, I was so I wasn't comfortable. I never got to where I wanted to go with the character or with the moment. I I, I went by myself. You gave me the time. I just couldn't make it. I couldn't bring that into me. And so I went away. And when I came back, you let me do it again. And I was so grateful because, you know." I, because I, I'm sure that it must have shown, I mean, you must have been able to see it, that I wasn't there, and the character wasn't with me. Well, I'm so happy we did it again because the scene is certainly one of the most memorable in the uh, yes. show. Yes, yeah. yes. And they, and they, uh, and, 
I think of those scenes. <laughs> the, uh, this, uh, I think of the author doing the um, those um, taking. I think of this 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 seer, this a prophet, this Mother Abigail, and he he brings her out of the outhouse. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's it's uh, you know wedding the. I love the way he does the, these kinds of things. It's just he, grounded. He, he, it's real life. Really. Yes, the reality. I mean, in the most most basic ways, coming out of the outhouse uh, with 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 the prophet, and even the hundred and six year old seer has to go yes, to the bathroom, yes, and, and she feels so much better when she comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that, and of course, you know, the the the, uh, the idea of the prayer, and I love the fact that he. Uh, makes of the seer, the the, the woman, uh, an ordinary person, also with with a self in, who incriminates herself, who with self doubt and and seeing the vanity in the very position that she holds as a seer, as the as though that one who will cause the future uh, to, 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 to come together in a different place, you know? And that she, and that it's hard to have that much power mm-hmm. and, and just be absolutely humble, you know? It's a weight. Yes. It's a weight. Oh, yes. And he's, forever he, he's doing this, the, human, the, the, the powerful and the, and the humble, uh, the, 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 the generosity of spirit with the meanness of spirit, the demon, the demon that you can see and the demon that you can't see that's in us all. Oh, yes. I, you know, of course, I, I'm not surprised that this film is will be one that will live with us through the ages, you know, of, of television. It, it um, uh, that we'll talk about it for a long time, because there's so, January? so much more here than meets the eye in this, in this um, miniseries. I, I said, when I saw this thing, I said, mm, you know, I could have seen this one half longer, you know because it was that rich. And for those who are aficionados of of Stephen King, uh, they can fill in all the spaces because they've studied him so much. But those who haven't need, need, we needed more time. I wanted more myself. I wanted more. I wanted more of the film. I mean, I wanted more of it.
Harold? We have something to tell you. Um, I, I don't know really how to say it. I think I have a pretty good idea. Congratulations. Well, Fran thought you might be a little... Jealous? Angry? Something like that, yeah. Well, jealous, yeah. Angry. It's life. I've got something to tell you. Couldn't say it up until now. I love you, Franny. Thank you, Harold. And I believe I owe you an apology. Hey, that's <laughs> all right. Still friends, right, guys? Of course. Yeah. Good deal. You uh, need any help with that? No, everything's under control. Sure now. So, Jamie, you weren't really a King fan or buff or knowledgeable about the book The Stand, were you? I was not, and boy, did I feel stupid after I read the book of The Stand. I'm telling you, I, uh, once we got started on the piece, uh, I read the, I went and read the book, and I, I was absolutely stunned by his ability to... Uh, what he basically, what, what hit me was that it was a plausible story of how a human being could become a demon. And it blew my mind. And he, he connects up uh, the Tate-LaBianca murders, he, uh, um, My Lai Massacre, uh, Jim Morrison in New Mexico where, uh, uh, um, where Stu sees him. Um, connecting up all those events into the possibility of a actual of a human of a simple human being turning into a demon and i found myself buying it and it just made it uh, it just made it compelling to play you know it just made it unbelievably fun to play but because you had I questions about doing that in the first place i mean you were not so sure you wanted to play the demon in a stephen king story yeah yeah <laughs> well I, I'm not too. I'm not too superstitious, but a little bit. <laughs> There's a sharp dressed man. Yep. I still have the necklace. Do you? I'm wearing it now. <laughs> I'm gonna make it disappear. <laughs> Turn it into a key. I'm gonna wrap it up in my hand and make it disappear. Matt Brewer's not wearing makeup there. <laughs> we just had him out in the sun for weeks. That's right. Invited the ants in. Bake him. Uh, another actual location of a uh, hotel room in uh, in Las Vegas. We spent two weeks in Las Vegas, and it was... It felt like six months. <laughs> it really felt like forever. Look at Frewer. This is the ultimate devotee. This is this is the guy that goes to Jamestown. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. This is, my life for you. This is David Koresh, my life for you, in the person of Matt Frewer. Uh-oh. We're looking at devotion. This was unbelievable to look at, to play this scene with. He comes walking through there, and I just thought, oh, my God, he's, he's in love. It's a the, man in love. 
This was the first scene anybody ever read in any of the casting sessions for us. Matt read this scene to us. And the obvious way to play it would to just be to play the insanity. But he played the pathos in it, and it was almost tear-inducing when, when he was doing his reading with us. It he, was, he broke your heart. I mean, he really, absolutely. really breaks your heart. Because, yeah. Like, yeah, he doesn't play, I'm a wacky guy. He's like, it's, it's a love scene. This. It's all love, yeah. This is a love scene. Exactly. It's all about devotion. Yeah. And the flag character, too. I mean, it's very important that it was played dead real, not just uh -huh. going apeshit. And with a sense of humor. The, the devil would not be frightening to you. He would be enticing. He would be right. seductive. Well, that was the, the joy of playing it was just the charm of it. And, I, and uh, it's funny that... We didn't get to do history because I mean there's just too much in the in the whole in the novel to do it all. But um, what I what I was talking about about that that backstory of the guy having of Steve having created a demon out of a human being allowed me to just have a whole lot of fun with it. And and I really basically that's how I carried it off, and it was love and fun. And with Trash Man, it's funny with with Trash and with Lloyd, it was all there was this weird sort of. Uh, for me, it came out of Vietnam. It came out of Steve implying that this guy had been in Vietnam in the, in the deepest parts of it. So that his uniting with, with characters like this, it, it's sort of the Marine Corps code, you know, you don't leave a man in the, you don't leave a man in the field. I don't know, that's kind of how I was working. And uh, this Randall Fragg really loves these characters. And, uh, you know, I mean, how could you respond to, to Matt otherwise? the way he's playing this, you know. I thought it was a great grace note in it. Oh, it's just <clears throat> one of the one of the things that's, that most impresses me about your performance as Flag is that just here's a guy, he's wearing blue jeans. He's this great-looking guy. He's just open and you feel he's an open book and that He's a pleasurable guy to be around, somebody you want to devote yourself to. He's Jim Jones, but Jim Jones was a lot scarier than Randall Flagg was. Yeah. Yeah, there's a force moving him that he's not really aware of. It's kind of how I thought of it, you know. It was the same way with Miguel. I mean, there's uh, I dreamed about you. <laughs> it's, you know, love among thieves, I suppose. I don't know. Well, you too. I mean, the, the Lloyd character also is devoted to Flagg, but in a very different basis than trash can. And it was interesting, too. It was great. I remember that you were talking about Utah, that first day in Utah in the penitentiary with the rat and the thing, and an awful lot of acting on very uh, very high evaluation. You know what I mean? It's it's not just, oh, I'm, I think I'll go get a sandwich. It's, no, I'm locked in this cell, and everybody else on Earth is dead. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. It's, it's, it's big stuff. Miguel was unbelievable in that scene. And uh, I mean, and, it, it, unbelievable and, in that scene. I was, I was blown and, away. And, well, and, thank you. You know, I mean, you were really. You were, and, and, and you came up, and we had this thing, and so it was great that we were f not only friends, but worked well together in the past. So that we, you know, it wasn't like, oh, hi, nice to nice to meet you, Jamie. Let's, uh, you know, let's vass up and wrestle. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, come on in. I, I made some lemonade. I'm here. I, I sort of love all this stuff between Flag and and Nadine. 
my idea was that Flag should look a little bit like a romance hero in one of those uh, Sweet Savage love novels. And here we have an actual playing out of uh, what to me looks almost like a cover on a uh, Rosemary Rogers novel or a Danielle Steele until you get over and see that the guy has no eyes whatsoever. So it's, uh, it's a nice little riff on that. And uh, here I am actually, I had a chance to play uh, one of the pilgrims on his way to Boulder. And uh, I love to act just the same way that I love to uh, play the guitar. I'd say I'm probably a little bit better as an actor than a guitarist, but I would have to say that, you know, put the most kindly, my range is narrow. But I did get a chance to act with Laura. And uh, at least in this case, I gave myself a part that was uh, marginally more intelligent. M my usual, uh, I've been typecast sort of as the uh, country asshole. That's that's my the part that I'm best at uh, with a room temperature IQ. And here I'd say probably the IQ is a little bit higher and at least the characters played straight. So that was kind of fun. Um, when I started working on the stand, I had the idea about the plague and seeing society fall down. And really, that was as far as I'd gone in my thinking. I was very energized just by that much. So I wrote that, and then I was forced to confront this whole series of questions about, suppose something like this did happen, when it's over, what happens next? What does society do? Um, my response to that, I'm afraid, wasn't very cheerful. It was a little bit like my reaction to Harold Lauder and thinking, uh, the world has fallen down, Everything has come to a stop, and yet Harold Lauder still can't forget uh, that he was badly treated in, in high school. And I had a sense that a lot of people would bring their old prejudices and their old ideas with them. And I'm not totally pessimistic about that. I think what, what we're looking at right here are people who actually see the chance, ordinary people, the chance to make a new society, to make a new start, and uh, to maybe take the next step forward. Um, on the other side of the mountains, though, you have the real agents of the norm, the people who want to basically are willing to sell their souls to get their lights back on. And uh, I think that that's a natural part of human nature, to say, I want my comfort, I want to get as... Uh, um, Larry says here, I want, I'll fall down and worship anybody that will give me a refrigerator so I can put the rocks back in my scotch again. And at this point, I started to think uh, that I'd gotten a hold of something that was a little bit bigger than just a science fiction story or a horror story. And the question became whether or not I wanted to pursue that, whether I wanted to pursue the big questions of good and evil and the questions about whether or not things can ever really change. And from this point on in the stand, that became the theme of the story. And again, in the, in the course of pre-production and then in the course of casting, and as we actually filmed it, uh, Mick Garris never turned aside from the bigger issues, always understood that we were after something more than just telling a story 
a kind of disaster yarn uh, like a meteor or atomic train, um, volcano, any of those shake and bake movies. I wanted to really try and tell a story about the transcendent quality of human spirit and, and the uh, ability to try and to start again, to uh, try and recreate not just the world that was, but maybe to make a better world. Now here, Nadine as the conduit between the world of the uh, people who really want honest change in Boulder, uh, and she's drawn that way, but she's also drawn the other way toward Randall Flagg. And uh, Mother Abigail senses that there's something wrong with her, but there's also something wrong with Mother Abigail. And uh, that was one of the things that I discovered. When I talk about uh, the uh, agents of the norm, when I talk about technology and that sort of thing, I, I also have serious doubts and serious questions about uh, religion and the religious mystic, which is very much what Mother Abigail is. And in this case, she's so involved in welcoming her new visitors, and uh, she's so overcome by their love that although she senses here that Randall Flagg has gotten, uh, uh, if we can, if we can uh, make a, uh, uh, a pseudo-sexual reference and say Randall Flagg has got his foot in her door, then uh, Mother Abigail senses that, and yet at the same time she's not able to put it all together. Um, she suffers from the sin of pride, and as a result, uh, Mother Abigail is able to create, I mean, uh, Nadine is able to create great havoc before she actually goes to the dark man. But the whole idea here of creating two societies with the Rocky Mountains between them seemed to be this uh, almost uh, symbolic recreation of America, little America good and little America evil, and I loved that part as well. One of the great revelations that I had in the course of writing The Stand is that nothing changes if the human heart doesn't change. And to me, it seems as though the only thing that can cause an authentic change of the human heart is a miracle. Ready, this young lady with the blonde hair, by the way, is Mick Garris's wife, Cynthia. And uh, she sort of is good luck charm, and she shows up in a lot of the films. In any case, these people have, to a certain degree, fallen into the trap that the people who are on the other side in Vegas have fallen into by going to Randall Flagg. Uh, they're going back to the old way. They're starting things up the way that they were before. They have uh, cleaned a lot of the, uh, the, the parts of the electrical power plant that were uh, fused and burned out, and now they're going to try to turn the power back on and get things going. Business as usual. And uh, I remember working on the story and just being energized through the first three or four months of the writing by the idea of saying, we're disposing of the Gordian knot by cutting it wide open. But then I said to myself, well, there's a lot of problems to be faced by starting up the old way again. And uh, 
one of the things that these people realize here is that they're going to have to go around and shut everything off that was turned on when everybody died. But that's really only the tip of the iceberg. There was something in that woman this morning. Was it him? In reading Stephen King, I found that I had to go back and go back. I, I had to put myself um, in, in this man's mind. He, he was going forward and going back. He was, it was, it was um, this, this time juxtaposition thing, you know. Uh, I, I, and also the, um, this, um, the prophetic nature. And also there was something a little bit um, crazy about it, <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't. I felt the seriousness and the and and the fact that it was it was like a prophet and somebody laughing a little bit too. This sequence I always loved. It's so emotional. I, it's always great when this script actually moves you and you don't have to do any acting at all because you're so moved by it. And, and this whole sequence was like that for me. And as always inspired by this actress who we'll see in a minute, Bridget Ryan, who comes in and has to have this big crying scene on her first day on a big show like this in front of 300 extras. <laughs> and she's looking at me like, oh my God, what am I doing? But she was fantastic. Well, it was interesting for me, too, because, uh, again, I had only done things that had a very small scale to them. I had never done scenes with 300 extras, things like this before, and I, I was always very intimidated by the huge uh, scenes like this one because they were all so new to me. But often it turns out that the bigger the scene, the easier it is because the, the crowd moves as a mass, as a, as a singular, as opposed to the individuals. You're really directing the forest and, and not the trees. This is also uh, the scene where I make my first appearance. That's right. Uh, and I'm almost always with Steve King. I think this is vintage, vintage Gary Sinise. This yeah. whole sequence. There I am. There you go. <laughs> well done. Gary, it, this is so much a Frank Capra movie moment. I mean, that's w what we intended was to get that kind of real America feeling. And Gary is such a Frank Capra kind of actor, just going to the heart of it, the reality of it, the, the, the blue jeans of it. What's interesting about Corky Nemec, who, who plays Harold Lauder, is in the book, he was written to be enormously fat, and he gets thinner as time goes on. But it just would not play realistically that way. We put a little padded butt on him earlier on and the pimples and the like and make him, let him be more good-looking as it goes on. But um, Molly has a terrific voice, yeah. as you can, you can hear. Her father is a... A uh, pianist, a professional pianist. This always moved me singing this national anthem. One of the most emotional moments in this whole show comes up during this scene, and it involves Rob. Uh, 
I'll point it out when it happens. But this was actually great, singing this over and over and over. Um, it could have been really corny, and maybe some of you think it is, but it actually stirred me for the first time since I was a child, maybe even ever, because it meant something here. It wasn't just parroting the words of the Star Spangled Banner. It really was all about starting this civilization over again and being grounded in a real plea for togetherness. And, and I thought it was coming. Yeah, here it comes. Okay, that's not it. <laughs> Haven't seen this in a while. There it is. Look at Nick feeling the words coming from Tom because he can't hear them. I just love that. It gives me goosebumps. <laughs> that was Rob's idea. That's one I had in my bag of tricks just waiting. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. I mean, it was so exciting to be stirred by that again. That's when I like that moment myself, I have to say. The loneliness of that figure walking down that street with all that, the tar repair shining in the light, a long, long shadow as she's making her final quest. Well, I'm pretty nervous up here, so I hope you all bear with me. We will, Stu! Now that was me. That was you. That was yeah. me, and the, the editor did a very bold thing. I'd never worked with him before, and he played my first line off camera. Wow. <laughs> without asking. Here you go. And you know, it was the right, it was the right choice, and uh, anytime you can play my lines off camera is an improvement. got the juice on again. Brad Kitchener, stand up, take a bow. He's great, Corky. I love these yeah. two. The two of them hey, together are such an odd couple. Yeah. I love her moment during the national anthem. It's the antithesis of mine where she's singing and stops. Just either doesn't know the words yeah. or doesn't care. <laughs> and Corky singing the national anthem uh, was great. He was so embarrassed because each close-up we had the actor go full voice and nobody else singing so that we could have a clean track for them when we mixed it in with the background. And Corky can't sing. And he didn't know he was going to have to be singled out like that. And he was so embarrassed. And it was perfect for Harold. Pennsylvania and Ralph Brentner from Okie City. <laughs> I love her. that enthusiasm. And again, the mix of acting styles in this show is so diverse, from you to Gary Sinise's style to Matt Frewer's very funny style and, and yet still emotionally based, and, and uh, Corky and Laura Sangiacomo, whose styles really match very well. Your lovely wife. Yeah. Good dress for her. Nice liking that dress. Yeah. <laughs> she wears it well. Thank you. I'll tell her you said so. I love Ray. I, I, I would love to work with him yeah, again. Yeah, he's amazing. Here he was, 80 years old when we shot this, and he had page after page of dialogue. And he had the whole movie memorized before we even started shooting the first day. All of his scenes were committed to memory as if it were a six-hour play. 
Chair recognizes Harold Lauder. I move that we accept Mother Abigail's Again, to exaggerate the, the potency uh, and nobility of the characters and the like, and to exploit the, uh, the location, I would shoot up as much as possible. It really, the hopefulness of the upshot, I think it's subtle, but it's there. Now, Ossie was not—Ossie Davis was not originally going to play that character um, of the judge. We had another uh, older actor who had come in, and he had the flu. And we shot that scene that Ossie just did, that shot, with this other actor. And he got sick and just kept up with—his flu just would not go away. And so we had to bring in Ossie. And that shot of Ossie was shot in the basement of a church somewhere else, surrounded by people. And a couple months later, the actor we originally hired passed away. And Ozzy is married to Ruby. Right. Correct? Absolutely. And at first we thought, oh, it was just too obvious, and his schedule didn't look like it was going to work out to hire him as the judge. And then when we had this illness taking place, um, we called him, and he was able to do it. And He's just great. He brings such a strength to it. to be a turning off committee. Uh, having the power back on is great, but uh, you got to realize that people didn't get up out of their sick beds and turn off all their appliances before they died. She's gone! She's gone! Mother Abigail! She's I must be gone a bit now. I've sinned and presumed to know the mind of God. I must try to find my place in his work again. She's one of the few times where we were all together. Yeah, very rarely did everyone work together, all of the leads. And it's one of those scenes with a lot of pages of dialogue, not a lot of action going on. There are a lot of scenes like this, but the dialogue is all fascinating stuff, and it's just people in a room and the challenge is to keep you captivated and the best solution to that is hiring the best actors possible for this we have to find out all we can about him I remember in the book I write all of this down spies and you know in a movie you don't want to have a shot of a guy writing the Gettysburg address here so uh, we did a little cheating on that to her god our friend in the cowboy boots and jean jacket isn't going to just sit over there on his side of the Rockies playing mumbly peg, you know. Now, Ray Walston is probably one of the actors actually old enough to know what mumbly peg actually is. <laughs> so it's good right. he had that line. It's a real good thing. All right. Let's talk about Flag. How do we look into his part of the world? 
messing my guitar. We were lucky with Adam because he could also play guitar and he knew how to play Eve of Destruction. So, <laughs> and here comes that horrible wig. Beautiful Laura and her hideous wig. She has very full hair uh, that comes right down low on her forehead there, so putting a wig on top of that really doesn't work. Am I obsessing about this wig? Yeah, go inside, a little bit. Man. You're right, though. It's an interesting dynamic, though, sitting in a room and watching these things uh, uh, when we're sitting in front of the Avid, just piecing together all of these things, uh, seeing things cut together for the first time. I think every director has that crash of seeing something put together for the first time, and it just seems like the dullest piece of shit you could ever imagine. Um, and... Uh, and it can't help but feel insulting to the editor. <laughs> Although uh, I, I rather enjoyed it the first time we looked at it because I was seeing it for the first time myself, um, even though it was way long. It was probably about 40 minutes. Uh, the initial cut was about 40 minutes longer than the delivery had to be. And I'll be damned if I can remember everything that uh, had to be cut out of it. Uh, I know we had the scene of the rats in the cornfield that just never really worked right. But a lot of things were just tightened rather than uh, removed. And over the course of eight hours, uh, 40 minutes sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But uh, other than full, complete scenes, can you think of any that we really lifted? I can't remember. You know, it's, it's been so long. I remember cutting scenes in half. Yeah. I know um, sitting out by the swings... Uh, that scene was cut from, you know, at least half its length. A lot of scenes were. But, uh... Wait, Sitting by the Swings, that was The Shining. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, a different movie. <laughs> no, we cut that one in half, too. Yeah, we uh, sure did. did. Now, at what point, Mick, do you start to lose objectivity when you're looking in the cutting room over and over again at the stuff? I never have any objectivity. I try yeah. to, but it, you're always seeing things outside of the frame. I mean, it's, I, it's I feel really like I have it for a long time, and then there just comes a point where I'm so used to what we've already done that anything new seems radical and uh, odd. Uh, a fresh audience always seems to help you see it through new eyes, but it, uh, there comes a point when it's you really depend upon the director to even allow you to see the film anymore. Yeah, it's, it, it's difficult to maintain any kind of objectivity, but, you know, that's okay. I don't think you should be objective about looking at something like this. I think you want to be drawn into it, and if, if, uh, if it's not working for you after the hundred viewings, uh, it's understandable, but um, you can still try to see that tree for the forest. We, we, we have an interesting way of working, you and I, of letting go of a scene, because very often we'll be working on a scene in the cutting room, and maybe I will say or maybe you will say, you know, this might go, and then you'll always say, not yet. <laughs> and we, we hang on to it for a while, and then we look at each other across the room and go, mm, not yet. And, uh, but ultimately it comes to the point when, uh, when a scene's got to go. Well, this was an interesting circumstance for both of us because neither of us had ever used the Avid before, and I don't physically make the cuts myself. Uh, the, you do. Um, and although it was quite a long uh, post-production schedule, particularly for a television production. Uh, the five months we were in post-production, it was plenty of time, but we also both really had to learn how to use this machine. Well, one of the things I remember being very confusing to you 
is since I have my finger on the button, in the old days when you looked at the, the editing systems of the Steambeck or the Chem, you could run the film forward and run it backwards, almost like speeding your video cassettes at home, and you could see what you were doing. But this is nonlinear editing, so you click with the mouse and suddenly you're back five minutes ago and you wouldn't know how I got there. Right. I wouldn't yeah. know how I did it. And you go, wait a minute, what did you just do? Where am I? And where was, am I? Uh, I didn't I wasn't able to scan fast it, forward yeah. or back, so I, I didn't know. know where we were. Yeah. Although we never came to blows. No, no. Actually Pat and I have never really had a, a fight in the editing room and that's unusual. I've uh, you certainly have disagreements, but um what was I going to say? I love you, Lucy. Oh, the other thing about the Avid is at this time, because it was still new, you could only have, uh, what, a two-second handle on either side of the shot that you cut into the scene. So you didn't have the flexibility of trying uh, without reloading shots into the memory. Uh, of, of trying different cuts. You could only have two seconds on either side of your cut that you could add or subtract from or change. So there wasn't the flexibility there is now of having the entire take in the Avid and using part, various parts of it here and there. We were extremely limited by that. Now you can access any material then. If we wanted to recut a scene, we'd have to stop for an hour or so while my assistant Donna would uh, digitize it and put it back in the machine. But she really saved us. She was wonderful, and it was uh, it was cumbersome. But for some reason, I never. Oh, there's the uh, the old hand on the shoulder gag. I never remember this scene. <laughs> when I, I mean, I remember it once. I'm seeing it again. But uh, thinking about the show, it's just not the most effective scene. Her walk up was very slow and took forever. And here's one of those. Long dialogue scenes, lots of people talking at a table, but an important scene. And it's a nice sunny scene. Probably seems like there's more of them in here than there are. You know what I find, Mick, as an editor? Directors are often, even really great directors, confused by scenes around a dinner table. It's, um, it's, it's, I don't know why, but it's, uh, I think you've done a wonderful job here, but it's, it's sometimes they just, they, they, you know, they can't decide where to have the sight lines and how to uh, cover the whole thing. Well, it's very complicated to sit down with your script and see who is saying what and try to position the people in their most advantageous locations to, for their conversations with one another. Who's going to be the primary speaker for putting this idea across? Who's going to be the primary speaker for putting that idea across? Whose relationships would require that they sit next to or across from one another? And uh, when you shoot it, you have to figure out which point of view you're taking uh, and which screen direction somebody's looking at. You don't want to have someone on one side of the table talking to people in two different directions so that you have to shoot two different angles of coverage for their looks to the camera to be the right direction. So it's complicated uh, and not particularly creatively demanding as far as the camera work can go. You basically can't do a lot of movement on a, on a long dialogue scene like this without screwing up your, your sight lines. So. Um, it's demanding for technical reasons and not always aesthetically challenging. 
probably sending challenging yes field. meeting that challenge yeah, is another right. thing making decisions like that is what being in charge is all about Grow up it's interesting to pay attention to what the dates are when uh, when the lower third titles come on for various chapters of this show and compare them with uh, what the weather looks like and what the trees are like. I didn't notice the last date that we were shown, but you see the brand new buds on that fruit tree in the in the yard there. That's very early spring. So who's the third goat? But Scout. You got any ideas? Nick here's got an idea, and it's a dilly. Ten, nine, eight. You're getting drowsy, Tom. Drowsy, that's right. I love the art direction of Tom Cohen's house, and and this scene was a real challenge because again, it was a lot of page count and a lot of people, shooting coverage of all the people. And my concept from the very beginning was to slowly go all the way around the table and keep seeing the shifting expressions and go from person to person to person and constantly move and then shoot the um, coverage without the movement. And a lot of people were nervous that it wouldn't cut together, but I think the performances hold it all. And it really worked. Trying to make the camera work not masturbatory, but only compel the, the plot and the story and the character relationships is, is the biggest challenge technically when you're putting a film together. Uh, and that's what, uh, what I tried to do with this. And this was the one that could have gone either way, but I think uh, the performers really, really pulled this off. Gary's terrific in this, again, uh, we all n know what we're asking him to do is, you know, maybe a, an incredibly dangerous thing, and we're aware that he probably doesn't understand the significance and the danger of it, and yet we've got to have him do it anyway, and we've chosen to have him do it, and the guilt that comes along with that. And He's afraid of us. Are you the same Tom that Nick met? What's interesting is that everybody's face is important at all moments during this scene, not just the person who's talking. I mean, obviously that's done all the time, not showing, but here you've got eight people around the table, and every moment their expressions, everyone was so there for everything. Nobody felt like it was their scene. It was a, a, a scene shared by all the performance all the performers, and each moment, there's not a vacancy on anyone's face at any time. I can there. remember, um, because there, you have to cover every actor, it took a long, long time, and we were Russian, and I think I was one of the last people to cover, and, and I remember taking it aside and saying, what we had begun doing is just picking up certain spots of the of the sea, and I can remember saying, please, please let me, let me go way. all the way through. Yeah. I don't know if I won that one or not. I'm but, sure you did, because I almost never will just pick up parts of a scene for coverage, because I like to have it from beginning to end, and I think it's the only fair way to treat the actors. But, uh, yeah, that day was a killer. Ugh.
It was so long, and the camera, the dolly creaked. This was an old house. It's not a set. And every move over that wood floor, there'd be creaking and creaking. So we're cutting around it. We're looping. There's, and I hate to loop the voices afterwards because you lose so much of the performance. But, but um, it was a challenge, to say the least, and it's another reason to just do so much coverage here. Spells moon. Come back and tell. The great relationship between um, Nick Andros and Tom Cullen here is is so tested now because Nick has to he knows he has to send Tom away. He knows what the result of this is likely to be and what you see on their faces between them is so great. And that woman might have idiot children. Idiot children like Tom. That's a killer. Yeah. That little jerk of the nostril and the lip. Don't leave him out there. Tell it back to me, Tommy. What will you say if they ask you questions? You drove me out because you were afraid I might have a woman and fill her belly up with a retard like me. When you come back here, you'll walk at night and sleep in the day. Walk at night, sleep in the day. But someone might see Sometimes you. the best moments aren't even quite in focus yet, but they're so powerful that you have to use that part of the take. Tommy. Kaylee? If it's more than one, you run. Come back when the moon is full. Not the half moon, not the fingernail moon. Walk at night. Sleep in the day. Don't let anybody. It's a real editor's challenge. Mm. Uh, my editor, Pat McMahon, I'd never met before this show, and he was working off in, in uh, New York while we were shooting everywhere else. And uh, he did such a great job with miles and miles of footage, and I've used him ever since then. Would you like to see an elephant? I do all right? I stand on my head like before? No, Tom. You did some even better tricks this time. Here's Mick Garris, our fearless leader. Uh, a chance for he and I to act together. And, uh, Talked about standard standards and practices and the problems that we had with uh, standards and practices. ABC uh, did everything that they could for us. And still, when the end of the world comes by plague, you're definitely going to have problems with network TV. And one of the big problems that we had was with the cleanup committee and the scenes where the people in Boulder are basically cleaning up their environment and again, you'll notice that most of these corpses died very conveniently with their eyes shut. But the technique that, uh, that Mick and I used on the stand and to even greater purpose with The Shining later on is that you kind of save up brownie points with the network. That is to say, I'm going to 
cut this part, that part, and this part, so you don't have to worry about standards and practices. If you'll let me show the bodies falling out of the dump truck, and if you saved up enough points, it's a little bit like saving Raleigh coupons, you know, on the cigarette packs to get raincoats and umbrellas and that sort of thing. Only here, you're saving up your points with standards and practices to get things uh, that you ordinarily couldn't get. Now, TV being what it is, um, it's very difficult to get permission to show bodies pouring out of dump trucks, but because the networks are worried about the incursions of cable where you can show a lot more, they've gotten a little bit looser, uh, no pun intended, when it comes to matters having to do with, uh, shall we say, va-va-voom. Uh, so here we have the seduction scene between Nadine and Harold. And while it isn't really explicit, uh, Mick certainly gets the point across, I think, of what's going on here. And uh, I think that uh, Harold is about to get extremely lucky here, uh, but probably in the last analysis, not as lucky as uh, he maybe thinks. I wanted to do stylistically this next sequence uh, something rather different than we had been. I mean, the Dutch tangles were interesting and the like, but I, I wanted to play things more quiet and close-up. Um, I do like the close-up moments in this. There's not a whole lot of real tight close-up sequences, but I wanted to just play the sensuality, the growing sensuality uh, between the two of them. Nadine's using her feminine wiles here as uh, instructed by her fearless leader, Mr. Flagg, and to play it a little off kilter with these Dutch dangles at first and then to smooth everything out once we go into their dinner together and make it something really heated. You know, the red room is is very much a part of uh, of this whole hellish atmosphere, the red dress, uh, play things in a sort of monochrome, not in a black and white monochrome, but in a, in a red monochrome. Really play the heat of blood, play the heat of passion, the red lipstick, the, but play it all very tight and sensually. Let the camera caress as hands caress and lips caress. Um, the hot light through the window, casting the, the, the bars of shadow across her, playing the hot, the, the, the flames. Everything is all about heat and passion, but it's slow and quiet. The glass it has always been symbolic religiously and otherwise, uh, the glass of wine. <laughs> that outfit on Harold, my God. But here, he's lost his blemishes. He's very handsome now. She's teasing, playing, drawing him into the trap. And I just, it's visually quite different from much of the rest of the show. All these tight little inserts are things that we didn't do much of uh, in the earlier part. Very good friends. You're planning on going west, aren't you? Sex, lies, and videotape was uh, something that, the first thing I saw Laura 
Sanji Como in, and I thought she was incredibly sensual and erotic in that, and and her face just plays so well with that blood red lipstick here and those huge eyes, and a very lush uh, figure. And uh, I just always wanted to have something hot and flame, a flame in the foreground and the background. It's all right. I am too. Again, the silences are something you don't get to to play with much in television, but I I think they're the most eloquent moments uh, at times. Who? Just letting it take its time here. But we can still do things. Things you wouldn't believe. Everything but that one thing, and it's such a little thing, really. How would you know? Only seduction could draw, uh, physical seduction could draw Harold Lauder into this trap. This uh, physical contact here, just tight on touches. Two new acquaintances. Bodily fluids, real, real tight pieces, I think, just really draw him deeper and deeper into big trouble. What is his left leg doing? (laughs) Is it breaking? The disappearance of the old woman might just be for the best. People should be free to judge for themselves what the lights in the sky are, or if God sometimes does speak in the thunder. You think she's dead? No, she should be. But I don't think she's done yet, or done with us. Look, uh, Judge, I wanted to talk to you. There's no need to twist yourself into knots, Larry. I know why I'm here, and I accept. How do you know that? Someone on the committee has been leaking information. I think nobody's been leaking anything, at least not to me. I merely ask myself what my first priority would be if I were in your shoes. The answer, of course, is information. That means spies. We like to call them scouts. Okay, scouts by all means. And each of we scouts is to be ignorant of the others in case of capture or torture. If you don't think you can make it, you just say so. Because you're not going to be much good to anyone lying dead of a heart attack besides some ranch road in New Mexico. (laughs) I'll leave tomorrow. 
and that uh, four-wheel drive of mine. North to Wyoming, then due west. I'll be cold. I'll be lonely. My bowels will not work properly, but also I will be clever. Yeah. I suppose you will. Did you enjoy that, Harold? Yes. <laughs> but it couldn't have done much for you. Au contraire. You know, it looks like blood. Guess that's why they use it in communion services. Drink up, Harold. How did you get into my house? He told me there would be a key under the stoop, and there was. Aren't you gonna drink your wine, Harold? Flag told you how to get into my house. Yes. He also said you have reason to hate them, all of them. It's the woman, isn't it? You loved her. But that didn't stop Redmond, did it, Harold? Well, she was mine. And the committee. That old woman left me off, and she let that hick Brentner on. I'm surprised she didn't let his feed friend on as well. There's someone in the West who will never take what's yours, Harold. And he's waiting for us. I know. I know he is. Then drink your wine. This is really the only time I ever got to work with Gary. This scene, yeah. It really was. And it was so fantastic. And, it's really spectacular. And, and I, just, I just really, you know, we just longed for more of an opportunity to do stuff together. But when we were in <clears> scenes, <throat> there were five or six other actors, and this is the only time that, the only sequence in which we got to do stuff. We really shared things together, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, when you're directing, you lose track of that because you're working with everybody and mm -hmm. it's all so compressed and everything's happening together. This theme is such a killer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Travel at night, sleep in the day. People think of Stephen King as a horror guy, but there is so much subtlety and complexity and humanity and beauty and richness that nobody gives him credit for. Probably more now than they used to, but this and the body which became Stand By Me and the Green Mile, I mean, there's some wonderful, wonderful stuff. Oh, look at that. I just remember in this sequence, Wanting to to put the brave face on it for him, and wanting to really play this as an upbeat thing until uh, until he drives off. Yeah, trying to hold it together. Yeah, I guess you know, it's not a big deal. And Gary just watching it happen, you know, kind of keeping his distance from it emotionally, but not quite able to. The big phony smile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Off into the distance. You know, just distance is such a, a, a wonderful visual metaphor in this. We had a moment there also where he turned and to me, I think, and he said, do you think we'll ever see him again? Okay, please call me friend. And I looked at him and shook my head, no. <laughs> yeah. Was, I just didn't want to leave it that way. You no, know, I don't, yeah, I, I wanted don't to leave you. the hope there. Yeah, yeah. no. So there's a, a Steve Johnson, Billy Corso, pregnant stomach on, uh, on Molly there. The doctor here is played by Warren Frost, and he's the father of Mark Frost, who uh, co-created Twin Peaks with, okay. with David Lynch. I had worked with Warren before in Psycho 4. He played a, a psychiatrist uh, in that film, and uh, he's terrific. He's, he's a great type for a doctor or a psychiatrist. And it, as I've said before, it's always fun to work with actors you, you've uh, worked with before and have a relationship with and, and know what to expect from them. It's also great to be surprised by actors and who bring something new and rich uh, and exciting into something. The unexpected being brought into a part is always what uh, impresses me the most in, in, a, uh, in a casting session when an actor surprises me with something I hadn't thought of before. That's often the way I'll go. This corpse was puppeteered by Billy Corso as well. Yeah, a wild card. Nice PJs, huh? Looks like he's fresh out of, uh, fresh out of bed. This was a junkyard uh, outside of Salt Lake City. And as you can see, it was really cold. <laughs> There's plenty of breath in this show. Do it, Harold. Go for it. <laughs> There's the pop flash technique that uh, I've used um, since. This was the first time I ever used it. It's something I'm kind of fond of using. 
flash bulbs that uh, start before the cut and bridge the uh, the cut from one scene to another uh, transition technique that I like. They're committee, Nadine. Oh, I don't know, I guess. She's not standing that way to be seductive. She's standing that way because it's cold in Utah. He told me. He showed me. What are you talking about? A surprise. A big, loud one. Probably not next week. Again, we're playing the contrast between the, the hot and cold here, which is a very important thematic element. Um, the blue, cold, blue light, that hot, hot red dress, their cool, uh, cool flesh tones in that white, blue light of the moon. So that red dress and the red lipstick stand out as well as the, uh, the red wine. Mick, when we did The Shining, you wrote up a visual manifesto before you started shooting. Mm -hmm. Did you do that for the stand as well? No, that's something uh, I started on The Shining and have done on everything since then. This is one of our rare California sequences. This was shot up uh, at, uh, what's the name of that Air Force Base? It's not Ed Edwards, is it? Good morning's work. Well, I'd like is a nice dip. And the wind was insane here. Dan Martin, the fellow talking right now, he, uh, he was in Sleepwalkers uh, and just happened to show up when we were shooting in Pittsburgh. Um, his mother was in a hospital there, and uh, he came up while we were shooting and said, Hi, Mick. And uh, that was when I, uh, I wanted to use him, uh, decided I wanted to use him in this as well. A really good actor. I've used him two or three times. Get the tool kit out of the cab and take it into the hangar office. You bet. M-O-O-N. That's Bill's tool kit. The, the wind made for a number of sound and uh, photography problems. You can't really work a crane in wind like that. Um, and I hate looping scenes, but um, we didn't really have to do much in the way of looping here except for Trash Can Man going through the uh, aircraft graveyard that uh, is coming up soon. Now, this uh, fellow with Trash Can Man you're going to see here um, is uh, director Tom Holland. A handful of directors cameoing in this film. Tom did Fright Night and uh, the first Child's Play movie, a uh, number of other things. He's a friend, and uh, it was fun to get him in. Again, we were shooting in California, and there he is. That's Tom Holland right there. And... Uh, it's always nice to have the people you know and uh, to to be on the set to give a little moral support and maybe a little creative uh, impulse. There was one point at which the stand, as a novel, almost collapsed and died. And uh, that was 
when I had gotten the people all together in Boulder and they were starting to reinvent society, I didn't really want them to do this. I didn't like it, and the politics bored me, and I thought that it would bore readers as well. But more than that, it felt like the wrong thing for them to be doing. It felt to me as though they were going in the wrong direction. I kept thinking to myself, look, they're having these meetings, they're having these committees, they're, they're getting uh, town meetings at Chautauqua Hall, and it's the same old shit. It's what got them into this stuff in the, in the first place. And uh, what are we going to do about this? And I quit writing for a week or two, which is usually the kiss of death for me. But I went on a lot of walks, and I wouldn't allow myself to take a book, which I usually do when I walk, because walking is, let's face it, one of the most boring things in the universe. And uh, I kept, I would just walk, and I would think about the stand, and I would think about these people in Boulder and their silly committee meetings and their politics and their cleanup committees and turning on the electric lights again, and I was thinking, this is wrong. This is all wrong. This is what got them into this mess in the first place. What can you do about it? And the answer kept being, I don't know what I can do about it. They're going in the wrong direction. And finally, this guy inside says, well, what do you want to do about it? Never mind what you think you should do about it. What do you want to do about it? And I thought, I want to recreate the plague. Only this time, what I'd like to do is to blow them all up. And this voice returns immediately. It's as though it had been waiting for me. It says, if you want to blow them all up, blow them all up. Have Harold Lauder do it. He's there, uh, the, the, the rat in the, in the granary anyway. Have Harold Lauder do it. He uh, is... Uh, uh, mean enough to do it. He has Nadine, uh, who would urge him to do it and uh, would help him carry it out, and then they could go west to the dark man. And uh, when I thought of that, I knew that I could finish the book. It solved a lot of problems. It got everything back to basics again, to the very simple fact of people who are going to have to let go of their politics, their electrical power, their uh, community making, and we're going to have to go on a pilgrimage and uh, bring things to an end. But the first thing that had to happen was that they had to be taught that they could not just simply return to the old way. And that agent of change was Harold Lauder and Nadine Cross and a bomb in a shoebox. And uh, that was the turning point in terms of getting the book done because it really simplified my problems and it also made Harold and Nadine real to me as a couple uh, in a way than, uh, that they weren't before. Harold comes to this realization that they've damned themselves and that the only thing that they can possibly do is to go forward. And... Uh, to me, it was one of those places where the, the texture kind of drew me into the next step, and I loved that. I love the sense of community uh, among the committee members, and uh, to see them react together reminds me of the way that real people actually behave when they're uh, changing things, and uh, to see them suddenly torn apart uh, seemed a lot more shocking. Yeah, I'd like to call this meeting to order. So had you read Stephen King before you got the stand? Before I got the stand? 
No. Now, what, what was it like to you when you finally met him? When I finally, when I finally met him, first of all, I was surprised at how young Stephen King looked, and he he reminded me of Peck's Bad Boy. That's about <laughs> the only thing I could think of. I mean, he he looked like that. He looked like that. I thought about Peck's Bad Boy, and um, that um, and I'm, I was thinking, well, if I were. If I were a, um, a being, if I had to inhabit somebody, <laughs> I think I would pick somebody like uh, like Stephen King, where you wouldn't really know exactly, because they're they're in this face that looked like um, reminded me a little bit of Bugs Bunny or something like that. That kind of humor um, is the is the beard. Was 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 the was this person with a with a beard and with a prophetic sense with a you know this 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 deep um, look into the in in this deep look into time and possibilities and the human condition and uh, and also. Um, some kind of delight in the shock, too. Something like that. Oh, yeah. uh, um, it's amazing for someone who has kind of a pulp sensibility and he's incredibly well-read and yes. incredibly serious and quite a wonderful writer of textures. Yes, yeah. this is what I'm thinking. The textures of what, what, what I was impressed I was impressed with, and I loved his smile. He's I very playful. His, uh, very playful. Very playful, and that you—I could never imagine that this book came out of this man. You know, <laughs> after I got into it more, and as I looked and thought about the the piece and the, you know, and I and I began to read about Stephen King himself, you know, and this and this wonder at the, that which is extraordinarily threatening or ugly or or frightening or um it's a way of uh, exercising something in himself this is what i felt mm -hmm. you know and so he could come up with these these concepts of of horror Tell me about the the experience you had the first time you met Molly Ringwald. Yes. When I first met Molly Ringwald, I don't know if you remember, but we were about to do a scene. I had I hadn't known her. I think I'd heard the name before, but I wasn't. God didn't bring it together. But I I had not put the face with the name. And there was nobody around to me to say, what is her name? Who is this, who is this young lady? And so we began to do the scene, and I had to stop because nobody had introduced me to her. I hadn't met her. I think I said to you, but I haven't even met her. I haven't said hello or anything. You know, so we stopped 
I think you stopped, you let me say hello, you let us talk, you went away, you gave us a little moment together to just to talk to each other, and then you came back. And I, f I forget how, I remember how much I appreciated the fact that you, that, oh, that I really had never seen her before, although in the scene it was so, I, that I was meeting her for the first time. I didn't want not to have met her in reality for the first time. Right. Uh, it's like lovers in a movie, two yeah. actors who've never met before, and on their yes. first day they have a lovemaking scene together yes. or something. Yes. <laughs> and, then, and then I was embarrassed to say, well, I hadn't heard of Molly Ringwall. You know, that, was, uh, that wasn't cool either. But, uh, but, but we did talk, and we got to, be, we got to know each other. It's time to make your stand. <laughs> no. Franny. No. Franny. Wake up, honey. Wake up. Did I lose the baby? No, no. The baby's okay. Says it's whiplash. You won't be running the hundred yard dash for a few months, but I think you'll be hard to move. Try to sit up. Oh. Nick's dead. Yeah. How'd you know? She told me. Who else died? No, we can talk about that later. No, who else? Chad Norris. Al Bundell. Angie Terminello. Dick Ellis. Susan Stern. 20 or so wounded. Who did it? It looks like Harold Lauder and that cross woman. Where are they? Are they gone? Yeah. Send them out. All but those that are left of your committee. All right, 10 minutes, no more. Come on, people. If you're not part of the committee, out. Let's go. Stay. This concerns you. You and Fran. Now, was it challenging to do a scene where you actually die in the scene? No. Uh -uh. As a matter of fact, I um, I, it's, it gave me an opportunity to imagine what that would be like, and I, and I, I remember feeling at that point, rehearsing, leaving myself, you know leaving myself, what? and you'd still be there, but you'd be moving out of yourself, that that's what death is. It's a trip out of yourself. And what occurred to me then was that it's possible to know about the moment of death and to really, like I got a brother, he was dying. They brought him home from the hospital because he wanted to die in his own bed. And they all stood at the foot of his bed, and he waved his hand. And he said, I don't want you to cry. He said, bye-bye. 
Bye-bye, I'm going. That's, so, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody consciously know that they were dying, that they weren't, that they, that, and, and that as the life leads you, leaves you, there is a kind of light that you can share, that you, that, that shines on future events that you have to take care of before you go, if, especially in this, given this kind of thing, that you see, you really can see the future. And of course, this was no, um, death, it's reputed to say that you can see the future, but that she saw the future for, ma for mankind, you know, was a, was a, was a big, big death, you know what I mean? And uh, this, I found that an extraordinary thing, and it's as, as if the, the life, life can't die, so the, so life, it just moves out, and as it's moving out, it takes its last advantage of the mechanism that makes it um, uh, tangible, makes it hearable, feelable, thinkable, before it goes, and you don't have to imagine anything because it's been said. That's what that last moment of Mother Abigail. It's so that's what so intrigued me, and that and and that she 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 left them the she left a blueprint for the future. You know what a marvelous concept for for death. You know for for this for last breath sort of. You know. Mm -hmm. Maybe we all die. <laughs> Take care of yourself. I love you. You know. Swear to me that you'll come back. Friend. Come on, God can't run all of it. Swear to me you'll come back. I swear to try. That's not good enough. Now, this is one of the reasons to shoot in Utah. I mean, the visual beauty uh, cannot be denied, and uh, this is a pretty spectacular location. I wanted to shoot in Colorado. We originally hoped to shoot there because that's so much of it takes place in Boulder, and shoot Boulder for Boulder. 
However, uh, there were union considerations and the fact that they had just uh, put uh, on the ballot uh, Amendment 2, which was discriminatory to uh, gay folks. And so we wanted to make a statement as well as uh, the producers and their fiduciary concerns. So uh, the compromise was, was Utah, and I think it worked out really well. I mean, this, these scenes of our, our men walking off across America are pretty potent here. And that's what this is about, is, is the trek across our nation. It's Americana in a Stephen King, Norman Rockwell sense. And some of these uh, spectacular shots were done second unit by our line producer, Peter McIntosh, and my hat is off to him. This shot in particular is a pretty eloquent one that he uh, put together. And now we're off on the road, and it's, it's an important moment. You all right, Stu? Yeah. It's not me. I think it's Harold. Something's happened to him. Come back! Nadine! 
Judge Ferris was played by Aussie Davis, who in real life is uh, Ruby Dee, or Mother Abigail's husband. And we were very lucky to get him. Uh, another actor was slated to play the part, and uh, unfortunately, he died. Uh, Aussie stepped in and uh, did a great job. As far as the character himself, he's an extremely noble individual. He's an extremely brave individual. He's one of the scouts that uh, the Boulder people have designated to go west and uh, try to discover what the dark man is up to. At this point, uh, he's discovering what is actually happening in the uh, West where drug addicts are being crucified. And again, uh, we had to fight with standards and practices to get that in. Now this fellow looking half bright and uh, playing cards is Sam Raimi, uh, the director who did Evil Dead and uh, also directed the film uh, A Simple Plan with Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, he and Mick and I all know one another. Sam's a great guy. I met him at the Cannes Film Festival where he was there with his first film. And at that point, he looked as though he were about uh, approximately 14, 15 years old. I remember sitting down with Sam and uh, he had a beer. And uh, I thought to myself, gee, you ought to give that back. You're, you're not old enough to have that. But he did a great little cameo here and he did another one in The Shining. In any case, uh, the judge, uh, and Dana Jurgens, who is another one of the spies, uh, they're, they're both discovered by the dark man, uh, Randall Flagg, and I was trying to play against the convention of popular fiction where the brave people always somehow at the end uh, manage to get away and uh, to escape the clutches of the bad guy. And that is not my perception of how the world works. But then, of course, in my perception of the way the world works, I never found someone like that resting on red satin sheets either. So there is obviously something to be said for escapism as well. Yum, yum. But uh, I thought to myself, the way that the world works is that when you send spies against somebody who is all-knowing and all-seeing, like Randall Flagg, uh, what probably happens is that they are discovered and they are killed. The one exception might be a guy like Tom Cullen, who operates on a different level. But uh, yes, I think that the judge is extremely brave and my object in seeing him, uh, in having him killed by the bad guys was to make the audience aware that we are playing for keeps, really and that nobody has a free pass to the happily ever after. Anything can happen, and in my fiction, I, I would really like the reader to think, yeah, anything very well may happen. Again, standards and practices, not crazy about all the bodies on display here in this, in this segment. And uh, we finally persuaded them that it would be okay because uh, they were dry but oh, they did not like that child in the wheelbarrow. Most of the dead bodies, by the way, were scavenged from a, a, a vampire film. Um, and uh, they're really sort of interesting to goof around with. They're like little apple dolls or something. They're very light and very spongy, but they look very realistic even when you're up close. Stay right there. 
Get that lettuce cutter out of sight. Okay. Here we go. Doesn't mark his head. You wouldn't shoot an unarmed man now, would you, old timer? Were you back at Copperfield? Yep, we uh, we seen you go by. Dave Roberts. Oh God! You bastard! Get him dead on, Dave! to smoke. You mean you didn't do that just for the part? No. Kelly Overby. Kelly Overby. The lovely Kelly Overby. She's very, very good, very sweet, too. She was funny. I remember, you know, she's a sweet young girl. All right, all right, shut the hell up. When it came to the uh, the romance scene, I was like, okay, I'm going to listen. Boy, she just turned into like a tiger, grabbed me and I was like, whoa, <laughs> yikes. Now, what was nice is we actually shot Las Vegas for Las Vegas. Your suite was actually a suite at the Rio in Vegas with a real view of the city. That's right? true. Yeah. Vegas for Vegas. Yep. Yeah. Jamie's not wearing makeup there, by the way. <laughs> He's not here to defend himself. That's Jamie after a rough evening. Most of the show was shot in Utah. Four of the five months of shooting was shot in and around Utah for a number of reasons, but this we got to shoot Vegas for Vegas. Now, what should be said here is that Miguel is Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Cool, Mr. Easygoing, and playing this asshole is a real stretch for him. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Kelly. That guy's no longer with us, is yeah, he? Yeah, Rick Aviles. He, uh, he passed away from AIDS. He was a stand-up comedian and uh, an actor in Ghost and other movies. Sam Anderson, the fellow uh, with the blonde hair on the left, he, uh, he was in Critters 2, my first movie I directed. Wow. And that's where I met him, brought him into this. Any particular memories of uh, the Vegas experience? Oh, many. <laughs> Want to share one? <laughs> I've forgotten most of them. <laughs> Maybe that's for the better. The big ending was 
pretty incredible. And I Very suppose I should, I should not talk about that till we get there. If we'll we're get, get to there. that. We'll get to that. You're not out of there in 30 seconds. You can give your sermon a flag in your panties. Now, Chuck, behind you there, the uh, big guy. The retired police policeman, right? Chicago police. Wasn't he uh, Dennis Farina's partner at one time? Yeah, he created Crime Story. He wrote the pilot. Very unique ensemble. Yeah, look at all those faces together. One of the things we talked about was such a wide variety of acting styles here. I mean, very grounded, someone like Gary Sinise, all the way to uh, what Corky Nemec was doing and mm. what Matt Frewer was doing and all stops in between. This was a set that we built on the same stage we did the cornfield in Salt Lake City. That's right. This is in the old uh, the Osmonds. Osmonds studio. Yeah. Dana. Hi, come in. You expected Charles Manson at the very least, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know what I expected. Lloyd. Lloyd. Poor Lloyd had a very bitter experience in Phoenix not long ago. It marked him. Sit down, Dana. What happened to the chairs? Oh, I had them taken out. <laughs> Liars sit in chairs, you know? Truth tellers just sort of hunker down. Your friends in Boulder sent you to spy out the land, true? I suppose. You, the judge, and someone else. I can't quite see this third person. Sometimes, usually in fact, I can figure these things out for myself. I'm one of those lucky people with a little psychic twinkle. But every time I try to see this third spy, All I can see is the moon. M-O-O-N. That spells moon. Does that mean anything to you, Dana? Not a thing. What about the judge? Oh, never mind the judge. Now pay attention, dear. I'm disposed to give you your things and send you back to your friends in Boulder. And when you get back, I'd simply like you to tell them for me that we are just trying to get on our feet again, as they are, that we mean them no harm. Then what's Carl Huff and that weirdo trash can man doing out at Indian Springs? Are you planning to turn the missile stockpiled out there into new age water fountains or something? <laughs> Never mind the trash can man. Let it go, dear. There's no reason to hang on to this spy business. Your old black witch is dead. Your people are in confusion. If there was ever any reason for your being here, it's gone. Mother Abigail is not dead. Oh. I'm afraid she is. I don't believe it. She died in a coma. Without saying a word. Well. That's it, dear.
You mean I can just go? Oh, there is one more thing. What's that? The moon man, dear. Who is he? I don't know. I think you do. No, really, I don't know. I didn't even know about the judge until I heard Lloyd talking about him with some guy in Idaho. That makes perfect sense. But all the same, you do know. You know and you'll tell me. Do you understand? Why don't you know? Why don't you know already? I don't know. <gasps> tell me, you bitch! Tell me! <laughs> oh, my dear. <laughs> you tell me what I want to know before I throw at you your bag to tell me. <laughs> What is it, Stu? It's Harold. 
He's dead. I don't know how I know or, or why, but he's dead. He blew his own head off. Gun oil. My mouth's full of the taste. May God have mercy on this poor excuse for a soul. In a funny way, I saw Trash Can Man as the real symbol of technology out of control. He is the dark man's tool. He is his number one, I called him a magician earlier. He's his number one magician, his number one scientist. And uh, he's the guy who is in charge of Randall Flagg's munitions. He, his job is to sniff out weapons and weapon systems. And uh, like a lot of eccentric, dangerous people, he is uh, valued in the West. But my own view about uh, technology is that it's a double-edged sword, and sooner or later, it turns in the hand, and we find ourselves at the mercy of the things that we've created, and then, boom. Trash Can Man didn't mean to do that. You can see that he's genuinely sorry for the uh, mess that he's caused here, but as he says, I can't help it. Uh, and I think sometimes that when we finally do blow ourselves up with the nuclear weapons that we have stored everywhere, the, uh, uh, what they can write on our tombstone, if there's any ground left for a tombstone, will be, I can't help it, which is what Trash Can Man says as he leaves Las Vegas.
So pick a fight. Just want you to tell me if you think you can, baby. Can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. <laughs> I bet you haven't been in this good a shape since you was a kid. <laughs> About a hundred years ago, right? Yeah, there's a perfectly good reason for this little stroll, you know. And Mother Abigail knew it when she sent us out the way she did, with just the clothes on our backs. Our bellies are empty, and more importantly, our heads are empty. Hell, mine was pretty empty to begin with. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm serious. We're out here in the middle of the great American nowhere, minus all the baggage we used to carry every place we went. She wanted us cleaned out, empty. Ready to be filled up again by some new thing. Maybe a great thing. Almost certainly the last thing. Come on, Kojak. Bench, boy. Go on, go get it. Go. My idea about evil is that it's tremendously attractive to begin with, but uh, 
after a while, you see that it's not very creative, that it's sort of self-replicating and uh, rather stupid. And in that sense, Las Vegas became the perfect symbol. Uh, there's a kind of uh, very amusing uh, uh, analog between the stand and what we see going on here and what we see going on in a movie like uh, Goodfellas. Don't you love Lloyd's shirt? Isn't it the perfect bad guy shirt? And even uh, uh, Flag's looks have a kind of uh, stereotype quality about them that is sort of amusing in its own way, it's at least as amusing as the constant use of the Frank Sinatra songs and Vic Damone songs in Martin Scorsese's gangster pictures. Uh, and I think that it's a valid view of evil as something that's uh, glamorous on the surface, but underneath is rather uncreative and uh, uh, repetitious. And what's going on here is that uh, Flag is starting to lose control. We've seen already that his pet magician, the trash can man, is out of control. And here he's losing control of his, well, he calls Nadine his wife. She is the chosen one, and certainly uh, whatever force it is that, that uh, impels Flag has uh, caused him to take her in the desert. She's become... Oh, that's one of my favorite moments. This is hell, she says. Uh, it took about five takes to get the door to shut, right at the, uh, exactly at the right <laughs> moment. But bad guys do have the best lines, don't they? And they have the best time. In any case, he's about to lose control of her, and she's about to take a high dive off a very tall building. Um, and I think that my view of, evil here is of something that can hold for a while and be glamorous for a while and is certainly very, very attractive. But uh, Flag is losing control and has no basic way to hold on to it. And in the end, he's totally mystified about, can have, about how it can have happened. But he's trying to hold on to the trappings of rationalism that caused the plague in the first place. And so in that sense, evil is like a snake that eats its own tail. So here's my favorite man walking in. Number one soldier, I was so glad you let me call him soldier. In that other scene? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, the, for, that, for me, that's what, what, I, what I wanted to bring back from the book was this whole, what I found, I don't, I'm not sure if Steve meant it that way, but I found this whole soldier thing, this whole Vietnam presence in it, you know? Well, you look like a veteran there. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the way we, the way flags dressed and everything, yeah, in the desert, you, and high, hair and everything. you know, running alone in the desert like a monk, I mean, it, it's, it's like a bush vet, you know? She's got something there. Yep, that's it. <laughs> She's got a bun in the old oven. One of the choices. Now, tell, uh, talk a little bit about the makeup uh, experience. Well, you'd it's never rough. really you'd never really gone through this sort of makeup before. No, I'd never done an extreme makeup like this, and uh, the one with the horns, with the complete horns, you had to wear a fiberglass domed like helmet which they would build the horns on and then attach, uh, not latex, what's the word? Uh, foam, yeah. For the foam and things like that for on your face, the, adju the adjustments to your face. And I remember I would lay down for lunch and I, I, my whole shoulders and head were like one piece. And I would go in like at lunchtime and I'd lay down and I'd feel the whole thing kind of shift forward 
kind of pulling the, the makeup off my face. But uh, those guys were so great. Uh, Steve Johnson and Greg Corso, they were just tremendous to work with. And, yeah. and I'll say that a, again a, with Bill Corso. Sorry, <laughs> Bill Corso. I'm thinking of poets, Bill. <laughs> I'm thinking of San Francisco poets. Um, they just did an incredible job. And uh, it was a lot of fun to wear and a lot of fun to play with. It was about a five-hour makeup job. It was a right? five-hour makeup job and an hour and a half to get it off. Luckily, I only had to do it. I think I only had to put it on about, I don't know, eight or ten times at the most. At the most. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was only five times because uh, since I've had to do it more, but I've had to do it like every day on right. a part. And that was that's brutal, really brutal. So, and they were well spaced out. And what time would you have to go into makeup in the morning? Whoa, there he is. <laughs> oh, that's an ugly fella. Let's have some lunch. I think Miguel's got a little story for us. Well, I do. I was taking a nap in my uh, dressing room at this stage. Jamie knocked on my door and said, Hey, Miguel, come on, let's go have some lunch. And I opened the door, and there was this devil with the full horns, the goat eyes, and the whole mishpuka, and I almost died. Miguel had never seen the makeup, and I had forgotten that I was wearing it. So I was just casually going over to Miguel to ask him to come have lunch like we always did. Comfortable makeup. And I and Miguel almost looked like he was having a heart attack. Him, he man. looked like his heart stopped. It was incredible. It was really scary. And really, he was getting a better look at it than I ever got. Now, here in this scene, destroying all this stuff, I was so glad this really wasn't in the scene. We didn't know what was going to happen. And bit by bit, we put it together, the marbles and the TV, and started letting me rip rip stuff apart. And it, I think it's really important to the scene. Yeah, what, what had taken place was uh, every time we'd rehearse it, it would gradually take shape. It was such a big scene, such an important scene, and so early in the production. It just took a long time for this eight or nine page sequence to come to place, uh, come into shape. And we would figure out, okay, this would be a good place for an explosion. This would be a good place for an explosion. Uh, all these little places where your character could blow up and something that could be sacrificed, climaxing with the television, the god of our lives right yeah. now. The television gets kicked in and the chair goes over. Yeah. Then he's happy again. And the the stunt where the the stunt with uh, Miguel flying across the room and everything mm, with the air ram, yeah. But you see, but you see, Randy's Randy's a reasonable guy, you know. He he gets to kill a few things and he turns around. And he's a happy fella. <laughs> I love that little moment there of the finger shutting point. her up. Just, yeah, just stops her. Do you remember Jamie when uh, Laura came up to me and asked me some acting question? <laughs> remember? Yeah. And I said, uh, she, uh, I don't know. She could have been like speaking Swahili, man. I had no idea what she was asking me. We come from different uh, sort of areas different of training. Yeah. <laughs> she was wonderful, though, and, she, and a yeah, sweet she was lady. One, really wonderful to work with. But I, I, I didn't know what she was asking me. <laughs> Jamie, what does this mean? <laughs> and I didn't know. Unfortunately, I couldn't help him. Look at the wardrobe, that, that shiny satin. Shirt on Miguel. I'm wearing that now, actually. <laughs> it looks just great. Miguel, are afraid. you wearing the underpants to go with it, though, Miguel? Oh, That's yeah. what I want to know. Oh, oh good. Yeah. It's all one piece. <laughs> there she goes. She's going outside. What's she going to do? Sneaky girl. She's going to upset Randy, I think. Sneaky. Sneaky. 
It's so interesting. How do you stage all of this? So much stuff goes on here. How do you choreograph it? And I, I just love that she's way back there in the yeah. background. Yeah. Just a tiny image between these two powerful faces right up front with the heat of the light on their faces from above, showing them in their full glory and way in back, this elegant lavender figure just moving across the back of the screen silently. You know, it's 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 fun. It's funny to me that uh, Flag gets sillier and sillier the closer he gets to Armageddon, mm -hmm. and the closer he gets to his objective. I mean, he's got to he's got to have a child. He's got to propagate, and it's funny. He's absolutely giddy with fatherhood. Yeah, and that's that's really what's going on in this scene. The way he the way he plays with with Lloyd on the way out the door. The way he plays with her before now, and now it finally comes down to it, where he needs her desperately. I loved it. Yeah, the giddiness of it is something. You know, he's playing just like all over the place, and 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 it's because he's it's because of that rape in the desert. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's because he's fulfilled himself. The destiny has been set. Yeah, but she's not going to let that happen. And this is where you first take it seriously. Exactly. That's the moment, that one reaction shot. Your control is slipping away. And here we're on a soundstage with just a blank white background and a little fan. Yeah, God. Just I kept, a tiny E fan blowing. That was weird. I kept trying to see what it was, you know. I'll give you everything you could ever want. That's our job, though, isn't it, McGee? Mm. <laughs> and that... See, that we couldn't get to see. That, that. Yeah. That's why they pay us the medium-sized money. <laughs> Eddie Pay did a great job, though, of conveying that looks to me like outside on a ledge. Yeah. You know? The, uh, the makeup by Steve Johnson was... Uh, I, it's funny, just there at the end when... Uh, where the morph happens with the full makeup with the horns and everything and the hair... I just remembered how amazing it was to look at. That, that was one of the greatest things for me was being in the makeup trailer and seeing, having them finish and then everybody propped me up to get a look at it. And it was just, <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. I mean, to me, it was, you know, I, I'm inside of it, so I'm not afraid of it, but to, I just thought it was gorgeous. And it, to me, it was very um, classical. It had a great sort of classical reference to it, you know what I mean? Well, we had about a half a dozen different uh, sculptures that Steve and his crew made uh, that we chose from, uh, some of them more horrific than others, but always wanting them to be fascinatingly horrific, beautifully horrific. Right, exactly, Not yeah. repellent, although we wanted it to get to a point where it was horrifying, but it was still something you look upon with awe, that you don't look away from, but you look to. Yeah, That yeah. it magnetizes the eye. At it's the not same a gooey, time, it's it not a gooey you. monster, you know? No. It's, it's a very classic image of evil. And, uh, the I goat mean, horns and everything. And the goat and eyes. The, and the eyes, yeah. Boy, it was hard to keep those lenses uh, from looking goofy without the slits going and whacking. That's right, directions. the slits would slide yeah, yeah. different ways, yeah. Hosing down the blood. 
I do remember one specific thing about this day uh, is there was so much wind we had to cancel the shoot. I remember. Yeah. Lights were blown down, and I I, I, I like this scene a lot because it it was the one time in the in the picture that uh, you saw Lloyd have a bit of a heart, mm-hmm. a bit of a conscience, or. One thing that scared me about this scene is because the wind was so noisy, we actually had to revoice it or loop the sequence. And I'm always afraid of losing the integrity of the actor's performances when you have to go back and sit in a sterile little box of a stage and try to recreate everything that was there on the day. But it was not a problem. I mean, Miguel, you know how to do that. Yeah, it's... um... I think we only looped you. I don't think the sound was as bad on the other direction. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Sam huh. needed revoicing. That's unusual. Well, look at the wind blowing on you, right. and then on his angle, right. it wasn't going at all. He was, I was his wind break. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's John Landis. There he is. Yeah. John's in a bunch of my films, and I've been in a couple of his. Uh, he put me in Michael Jackson's Thriller. I was one of the zombies in that. And uh, I'm also in The Stupids. And he's in this. He's in uh, Psycho 4. He's in uh, a number of things I've directed. What was that? Not just a deer. They're all over. Maybe we should go look. Go ahead. Why should I be out there wandering around in the dark? Maybe break my leg for that freaking cowboy boots. You ought to watch it, Rich. Man has a way of hearing things, seeing things. Well, flag don't scare me. Billy, toss me another one. I gotta sit out here and beat my butt out. Demo will win. It's Bill's moon. Utah State Highway Department about this. Must have been a flash flood. A damn mess. Think you can make it, Glenn? I think so. Now, what do you think, Kojak? Won't any of us do better than that, huh? <laughs> well, here goes. Come on, 
now. I'll go. You guys wait till I'm all the way up. Be careful. Piece of cake. It's a good way to kill yourself, Bateman. Where'd you get the soda? Tour bus. About a quarter of a mile west of here. Thanks. They had beer, too. But I didn't want you taking these with alcohol. I brought them with me for my arthritis. Down the hatch. Ralph and I will go next time, Glenn. Stay here with Stu and rest up. Go where? We're going to make you some kind of stretcher. Get you out of here. Hold up someplace I think Green River to be best. No, Larry. I'm not going. What are you talking about? I'm saying no. No trip to Green River, no stretcher. It's against the rules of the game. This is no game, Stu. Stu's right, Larry. Mother Abigail said one of us would fall by the way. What does that mean? Huh? What are you saying? You're a college professor, for God's sakes. Not anymore. In case you hadn't noticed, Larry, school is out. Look, I thought he was your friend! Of course he's my friend. But that doesn't matter now. It's God's plan. Shut up about God. I'm sick of hearing about God. 
This whole trip was based on the idea that Mother Abigail knew what she was talking about. That's right. It's not right! It's not right! This isn't God's will or God's plan. It's a washout! And you got a broken leg, Stu, and I'm not gonna leave you here. Larry, Larry listen. What? Listen. Listen. When we came on this trip, we put our lives in the hands of Mother Abigail's God. Now, that hasn't changed. If he wants me to eat, he'll send food. If he wants me to drink, he'll send rain. That's his business. Yours is to go against flag. Now, you got to do that. You got to go without me. Do you know how, how crazy that sounds? Do you know how totally damn crazy that sounds? say, all things serve the will of God. Maybe that goes for big dumb dogs, too. Take good care of him, East Texas.
dog, Kojak. That's a good boy. Well, do you want this? I guess it's about that time, isn't it? I'm taken alive. Halt, right where you are. Halt, he said. How you doing? <laughs> Where's Stuart Redmond? He met with a slight accident on the way here, Mr. He's Paul Burleson, my first deputy. I'm Barry Dorgan, Chief of Vegas Security. What kind of an accident? He stubbed his toe. Look, Mr. Drogan, Chief Dragon, Captain Drogan, whatever you want to call yourself, why don't we just get on with this? All right, by virtue of the power vested in me, smartass, you're under arrest. In whose name? You know who I speak for. Then why don't you say it? Well, I'll say it for you. Calls himself Randall Flagg, but who he really is is an apostate of hell. Now, you got that on your little clipboard there, Mr. Burleson? I wonder if you men might give me your social security numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want them split up. Take Laughing Boy and the old man, put him in the back of my car. Take uh, Farmer John, put him in the back of yours, Ace. Yo. Come on, come on! Relax. You don't need those. That's why we came here. We got a message for your little tin god. <laughs> 
Ten God? <laughs> Ten God. Man, that's funny. I spent 22 years on the Santa Monica PD, and I know what happens when guys like you end up running the show. We haven't got a single addict in Vegas. Can your people say the same? Mr. Dorgan. Even a man of your apparently limited intelligence should be able to see that your experiences with a few battered babies and drug abusers doesn't justify your embrace of a monster. Oh, that's great. Very good. You get the Rodney King Humanitarian Award for the day, Pat. It's almost over for them now, Larry. Can you feel it? I can feel it. All right, never mind the cuffs. Just get them in the cars. Now. Now, move! Ah, uh, this is one of my favorite sequences in the uh, entire movie. It's not in the book, I don't believe, the part about the cockroach. Might be, but uh, I don't think that it is. At the time that I was working on the screenplay of The Stand, I had just seen Stanley Kubrick's film, Paths of Glory, and there's a, there's a scene in that where one of these guys who's about to go before the firing squad is uh, looking at uh, bugs and saying, tomorrow I'll be dead but you'll still be crawling around in your little insect life. And so I put it in the stand, and uh, we were afraid that we might even have animal rights activists on our asses for squashing a cockroach. But in fact, several of them were stunt cockroaches, although I have to be totally honest with you. You know how it says at the end, uh, no animals were hurt or killed in the making of this film, but actually three or four cockroaches actually did get squashed, and if someone out there listening to the sound of my voice really cares about those cockroaches, all I can say is, you've got karma problems. But in any case, this was filmed actually in Utah State Prison, and uh, they were some of the earliest uh, things filmed in the show. You know, when you film uh, TV or movies, but particularly TV, you very rarely have the luxury of filming in the order that things are done. So we had uh, Ray Walston come in, and do a tremendous job and kind of set the tone for the whole show. And one of the things that Mick did several times in the course of The Stand, there's the scene in the Shoyo Jail, there's the scene with Lloyd Henry and Flagg uh, in uh, the Arizona prison, and then there's the scene here in Clark County Jail where he's shooting through bars back and forth and doing the two shots. And one thing that I'll say for Mick is he always found a way to make it look interesting and uh, so this is one of my favorite moments and it certainly is another case where I think that we don't necessarily expect the good guy to die and when he does we're both shocked by the fact that somebody that we're rooting for actively has died but we also if it works we understand that he died for something that was greater than himself and here for the first time we see flag aware of the fact that he is no longer running the show. One of my ideas about Flag is that when you finally see him as he really is, he's very small indeed, and then a lot of times the things that we're afraid of are very small. They just cast large shadows, and that's the case with Randall Flag. Shoot him. What? 
Now, at the end here, when Lloyd shoots... Um, Shoot him, you idiot! Shoot him! He's an old man. When he finally shoots him, um, and Larry dies, uh, he, he quotes Jesus Christ, and he says, uh, I forgive you, uh, Mr. Henry, you didn't know what you were doing, as uh, Christ uh, uh, saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, which I thought was uh, sort of a nice, a nice touch. He's certainly a sacrifice for the greater good, so why not? Like him that put you in, that let the super flu loose in the first place, for that matter. But you choose, Lloyd. He lies, Mr. Henry. You know that, don't you? I think that this is also, in a strange way, Lloyd Henry's finest moment. Uh, certainly, it's a sad comment when he says uh, that the monster, Randall Flagg, has told him more truth than anyone else in his life. It's all right, Mr. Henry. You don't know any better. Might be kind of a corny death scene. And the actual moment of death has a kind of uh, <clears throat> used feel, but everything that leads up to it seems to me to be fairly strong. And uh, here are men who know that they're going to die, and uh, they're trying to hold on to their religious faith as well as they can. And uh, outside of the Hallmark Hall of Fame presentations, which, forgive me, have a tendency to be rather sappy, I think that... Uh, this is as, as good as I can do in terms of religious belief, depicting religious belief. Behold a pale horse, and him who rode upon it was death. You must see what's coming, Stuart, and take back such news as will never be forgotten. Now wake up. Wake up! I can't. I can't, Mother. I can't, Mother. Wake up! I can't. I can't. I got to get up there. I got, I got to get up there. I got to get up For me, this was one of the most satisfying parts of the story to write, both in the novel and the screenplay, and I loved the way that uh, Gary Sinise played it. This is real man against the elements, and uh, it's, we're down to the very simple uh, facts of survival, man against his environment, and he's not having a very good uh, a slog of it, but he's giving it his all to get to the top because he knows that he's supposed to be there and be a witness. And when I said that I had no idea how important Tom Cullen would be or how pivotal he would be to the 
plot. I never had the slightest idea uh, when I introduced Tom um, in May, Oklahoma, that he would turn out saving um, uh, Stu's life. And of course, the two of them are supposed to uh, be there, I suppose, because it's God's will that they should see the ultimate result of technology. The plague is one uh, version of that. And here, uh, where Trash Can Man has brought the atomic bomb back to Las Vegas, uh, we see the, uh, the other, um, we, see, we see another outcome, another possible outcome of the evils of technology. And the section here is called Pale Horse, Pale Rider, because uh, in the book of Revelation, it says, uh, I, I saw a pale horse, and behold, upon his back there was a pale rider. And uh, the name of the horse was pestilence, and the name of the rider was death. And uh, we've seen the plague, and here where the atomic bomb wipes out uh, Las Vegas. Um, I think that the idea um, is for Stu and Tom to go back to Las Vegas and say, we've been given this one last chance to make a clean start and uh, go back to another way of life. And if you were to ask me, do I really believe that, uh, I suppose what I'd say is it would be very difficult for me to let go of my creature comforts. But at the same time, I like to think that I could tighten my belt. And if it came down to a choice between, let's say, uh, getting the power back on and uh, uh, running the slot machines in Vegas or holding on to human existence, I'd like to think that I'd pick the human race. It really was interesting how, um, Jamie, how this really was, from our standpoint, two different movies, you know? Uh, there were the bad guys and the good guys, and rarely did the, did the twain meet. I yeah. mean, there were a couple days here in... Uh, in Vegas, and you worked with Gary briefly, but um, for the most part, we, Very didn't, we didn't meet any of these guys until the party in Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny, now that you look at this scene, I remember it was unbelievable how many people wanted to be evil. <laughs> they wanted well, to be on Flag's side. These guys got scared. These yeah. guys were actually these two guys were actually very very frightened because of this crowd, this crowd of extras yeah. really got they, into they it. They came to play. And it scared the hell out of the actors yeah. inside the van cuz they were banging on it, climbing all over and it. shaking it and, and and you know they they really feared for their lives. They, who was they the told AD me. who really foamed them up? Remember uh, Matt the Weiner. Matt Weiner. Matt Weiner, yeah. Crazy Matt Weiner. One of the loudest voices you've ever heard and he could he could Locked down a city by himself. He talked like this, yeah, yeah. Matt Wiener, yeah. <laughs> and he could get, you know, a whole city block full of people, which this was. This was 600. He could people. get them moving, yeah. yeah. And whipped them up into a frenzy. Whipped them up into a frenzy, and they were they were pitching that car back and forth. And uh, what was funny was the I don't know. I always felt like wherever when you talk about two worlds, you know, two movies. Yeah. She was freaky, that girl. The people who, the people who wanted to be... Uh, I dug her. Sorry. She was great. People wanted to be on the side of the bad guys because it was sexier, I guess. But Well, you know, also, don't forget, remember our, our entrance? It was, like, it was like Mick and Keith walking onto that stage in right, front of those right. several hundred people. Coming it was down pretty cool. Yeah. 
Well, this was the most intimidating scene I'd ever done. I'd never done a scene of any scope before. And here's hundreds of people. We closed down uh, downtown. downtown Las Vegas for three days. The old strip. The old strip. The classic strip, yeah. yeah. Fremont Street, which is now covered up and completely different. Really? And speaking of strip, on, on breaks, uh, we would dive into that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Exotic dance establishment. <laughs> Glitter Gulch. <laughs> Glitter Gulch. It was with, very uh, popular with, with, with our cast. With Matt Frewer. Where Matt Frewer. With, with, with his full nuclear makeup. Thrilled the girls with his <laughs> and, makeup. And the exotic dancers like, is it real? Can I touch it? And he's like, well, yeah. there was, I think there was a breast that stuck to that sticky uh, makeup. I, I think so. <laughs> at one point. Look at this. There, there it is. How did that feel? There's Mick and Jeez. Keith, baby. It was pretty cool. I used to be a rock and roll singer, and so I know what that feeling is like to go out in front of hundreds of people, and that's the whole point of playing this, like a rock concert, but in the thick of Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah. Look at the, the images, the, those uh, the the crow insignias images, on the yeah. flag were just brilliant. Yeah. Really wonderful. Yeah, but it, uh, I, I thought that a crowd like that would be the most difficult sort of scenes to do. But crowds act as set dressing if they're working right in a way. They're very easy to control because they're not individuals. Once they know what the business is, they work as one. And it became like a stunt. You worry about working it out, all the details uh, of working it out. And then it's done. And once you're shooting, they do it. And all these guys through these long, long nights, and they didn't have trailers or any of that stuff. They oh, were no. wonderful. Yeah. It was a great group. Yeah. Speaking of Matt Wiener, I think he cut a couple out of the pack, as I recall. There are always extras who uh, want lines. Yes. And they'll try to sneak them in so they get paid Screen Actors Guild rates. This is the crucifixion here. Yeah, exactly. You want to talk about that hair? Oh, it was great hair. It was a great wig that we made in L.A., I think. Uh, I think was I it a wig or just extensions? <clears throat> There's a half wig, I think they call it. It, it comes in. It's my, my own hair in the front half of the head. We were able to use that. And then it's a... Uh, it sticks in about halfway back your scalp. It's uh, like a like with a Spanish comb type thing, mm -hmm. and so the whole back of the head is the wig that falls down. So uh, it ends up looking very authentic because you're able they're able to mix your own hair with the with the hair of the wig. Well, that that's one of the few successful wigs. That is completely believable. That Laura's didn't look bad. Laura's was terrible. Really? <laughs> yeah. Laura's it looked wig. okay to me right then. Laura's white was wig. Laura's wig made me make a rule to never, ever, ever use a wig again. Huh. I hate them. But Jamie's could talk me into this it. One yeah, really, no, James, yeah, this James one really, real. It really yeah. was surprising how well it worked. But that was part of, partly because of this half wig thing. Right. Because they're able to use the whole front around your face, and that's really where the character of your hair is. You right. know what I mean? The way it relates to your face. So. And Laura has very thick hair of her own that comes up very close on her forehead. So to put a wig over that is doubly tricky. Yeah. But we really wanted to go theatrical with this sequence. I mean, it, it was a huge sequence. We didn't want to cheat on it, cut back on it. And that whole staging area and everything that, uh, that Nelson built, I just, I love how over the top it is. The, uh, 
upside down horseshoes. <laughs> you know, yeah. the bad luck. Out of luck, baby. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there, just there's, there's trashy. Oh, remember who who we had also as one of the featured extras was Rich Little. As, yeah, as, Rich, I, recall, yeah, yeah. as I recall, you were trying for Jerry. We uh, almost got Wayne Newton. Or, oh, it was Wayne. We That's almost what it got Wayne. We tried for Jerry. He wasn't in town. We got Rich Little, but once we cut it together, we realized it was distracting to see Rich Little throw a, a rock <laughs> at Randall Flagg. <laughs> it would have been different to have. We almost had Debbie Reynolds, Wayne Newton, Rich Little, but it would have taken. It would have stripped the drama from the scene. It would have made it a winky scene. You know, uh-huh. nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. As glamorous as this location looks, uh, it is the, shall I say, seedier part of Las Vegas. Yeah. That Plaza Hotel is no show place. This is this is wonderful to me. The way Miguel is is so tender, yeah, with Trash Can Man here, and it plays out what we were talking about earlier between Flag and Trash Can and Flag and Lloyd. It also exists between Lloyd and, and Trash Can Man, and there's a a great tenderness on that whole triangle. Mm. Which I, I don't know. I don't. Look at the burn makeup. I mean, even the subtlety of it being blasted red around the goggles, you know. Chicks at Glitter Gulfs loved it. Trash. You have to get that away. It's dangerous. The big crescendo. Suddenly, losing, losing the control. The music is a totally different style here, too. goes from the blue jeans guitar music to this big orchestral piece. This is the big moment. Chintzy little uh, special effects, unfortunately. He's, the hand of God, to me, was a huge disappointment. The hand of God is a, is a tall order that's difficult. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. I yeah. wonder if anything would have satisfied <laughs> you him. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's a large deal there. Yeah. <laughs> he was good. He was fantastic. Yeah. Both those good, guys were good fantastic. Cast. Get away. The Golden Goose. Glitter Gosh. That was awesome. I did not know if we could make this ending work. Reading the hand of God gripping the bomb and blowing it up was so hard to convey visually from what you read on a page it makes sense but to do it wordlessly and just do it that morph that was into the crow that worked that's the one morph i like in the show that worked really well i it's we didn't there were a couple others we didn't do that i was i was i would have loved to do like the one on the sitting on the sitting on the mercedes yeah yeah. you know out in the desert well we cut a lot of the morphs because First of all, the morphs weren't that great. And secondly, you get sick of them real quick. You know what Flag can do. You know what Flag can do. He can change from face to face, from body to body, uh, even into a crow. And to show that repeatedly would have been really dull. So do you think Flag got away? Yeah. He's loose. He's among us. You've read the book. Hey, did he get roasted up in, in his little crow suit? Actually, uh, he's sitting on the fence out of my place. Right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember sitting. I remember sitting before we came to do it, riding my bike on my little porch in that little one bedroom in Point Doom, and watching the crows on the fence. And watching, there was one point where I I saw these two crows making love. You know, it was like I just, it was in my head. 
It's funny. It was just wonderful to watch the crows when you about to play a crow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I had always hated them, you know. I was always like uh, convenient, you know. They were always conveniently bad guys, and all of a sudden, you know, you're imp you're empathetic towards the character you're gonna play. So all of a sudden, I was looking at crows in a way I never looked at them before. Well, it's interesting the difference between this version and this was based on the original published version of the stand, not the unexpurgated expanded version that came out just a couple of years before we shot this, right. and even. The eight-hour miniseries would have been difficult. It was we had to cut things from that book, right? But I would so love story. To, I would love to have had the kid, for yeah. example, the character from the expanded version. But just no room. All right. Is it, is it, is it going to be okay, Stu? Is it going to be okay? Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe we just got us a break. <laughs> This entrance, my entrance here, is, I knew definitely was your little tip of the hat to one of your big mentors, Mr. Spielberg. Oh, just a little close encounter cloud going through the doors, <laughs> you think? <laughs> Never done a shot like that before or since. Is it really you? But how else to present an angel? You said you were dead. Stu's very sick, you know. It must have been great to have these two dialogue sequences. Well, they were, and they come in a really great place in the character, very, very early on, and the very last thing you see. So you really have a chance to introduce the character in a way you'd like, and, and then sign off in a way that you'd like. But I have to tell you, I got used to not talking. And then when I had to talk, Seemed very foreign. I like the adjustment of his hair. That's a yeah. That's a bit I lifted from um, the way we were. Really? Yeah. I didn't think anything in this miniseries would have been inspired by the way we were. I have a very <laughs> odd bag of inspiration. <laughs> I guess. So. Yeah. Just going into that fabled white light is so beautiful. It's a good exit. How do you know to get 
I think one of the main themes of the stand is um, to make our lives count so that we can nobly face our deaths and uh, whatever lies beyond that, if anything. And um, that each of us has a goodness within us that we have to reach into um, for the betterment of ourselves and the people around us, that we're all capable of it, that we all have nobler goals, and and when called upon, there are reserves that we can tap. And Tom Cullen and Stu Redman really exemplify that more than anybody in this. They they go literally to the ends of the earth to, to save the people around them. Tom does not have the mental facility that Stu has, but he has a heart bigger than his brain. And... Uh, it is every bit as potent an organ and really important for him. Uh, it's what drives him. And the goodness that um, they both are capable of sharing with the rest of the world is what will save the world and does indeed save the world as it starts over. And I, I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, sentiment that, that Steve was able to capture and in the dressing of, of a horror story. Tom? Hey. Tommy, what's wrong? This was a shot at Robert Redford's uh, Sundance. I think I said that in the earlier scene. Um, and again, it was uh, in the spring. This was near the end of our... This may have been the very last scene we shot uh, before we moved out of Utah. I'm pretty sure it was. And uh, we left Utah for Nevada and uh, points east. I love the way the two of them interact. I just think uh, Bill Fagerbachy and, and uh, Gary Sinise connected so well for these scenes. And the music that Snuffy contributed really adds a nice emotional resonance, and that's what you're always looking for in the scenes about people. People always think that Stephen King means horror movies and, and monsters and booga boogas, but again, it connects with you because of the humanity of the people and, uh, and the sentiment of the characters. And sentiment and sentimentality aren't necessarily the, the same thing. This is the very first shot uh, that I did um, for, the, for the film. Uh, just tried to uh, show everything in, in, uh, that they were going through in the one shot. And then, uh, again, some of these shots were done by Peter McIntosh, too, for the montage. Now, the snow here is interesting to watch. Um, we couldn't use... Uh, a wide falling of plastic flake snow. This is fake snow, obviously. And that's Mike Lookinland, who played Bobby Brady in the Brady Bunch. He was also our camera assistant. In the wide scenes, you're seeing uh, foam, soap foam snow. Uh, and in the tight scenes, it's plastic flakes because we can control it. You can't do it wide because of the ecological repercussions of the material. However, some of the close-ups, uh, we reshot the close-ups to use the, the flake snow because some of the close-ups uh, you'll even see in what is uh, remaining here. Um, <laughs> big globs of, <laughs> of foam soap uh, falling on people. Because the foam soap drifts, drifts nicely for wide shots better than the plastic flakes. But in tight shots like uh, this one, 
the close-up stuff is, is flakes. Uh, the background and surrounding stuff is foam. And what they're walking through is mostly foam. But uh, let's see. I'm pretty sure there's some stuff sticking to Steve King here. Uh, Steve King as Teddy Wyzak. Um, well, so far, I don't see any of it. I don't know, Pat, uh, you had a, a bit of a uh, challenge trying to cut out the shots that have obvious. There was one big glob of, of foam on Steve's nose that uh, obviously didn't make the cut. Oh, I guess none of it's in that scene. Well, by golly. From here on in, it's really all about starting over, and that's that's what really drew me to to this is all of the emotional uh, contact of starting the world over without the politics, without anything but but good intentions, um, and uh, it just really resonates with me and. I know for some people it was a bit sentimental, uh, a bit too sentimental, but for me it's just human, and for me it's people getting the chance. The baby they're afraid of is going to live. Everything's going to work out, and, and um, I found that very powerful. Just this handful of people re representing an entire new society being created. Black hole in the middle of me. I can't help thinking, what did we all do this for? Why? You propose nothing in the sight of God. Did you have any continuity uh, um, problems with cutting snow things together? You know, I was thinking back to the previous scene when Steve King is, uh, intercepts the snow cat, and uh, I believe, Mick, the scene went on I believe the scene went on beyond that. Oh, it that, did. Uh, yeah. We just clipped it there because it was just too messy <laughs> after that. Hey, Doc. The baby's dead, isn't it? No, quite the opposite. I believe the crisis is past. You mean she's going to be all right? Yes. I think the baby's going to live. It's just a drama from here on out. There are no more special effects. There are no more monsters. There's, it's just... Trauma, you know, it's the human story, it's the human condition, and I think it's pretty universal. And I think um, these are the moments that helped it resonate with the with the country. It reached certainly the widest audience uh, anything I've worked on has has reached, and I, I think it's because it's more than just a horror story, um, and more than merely uh, a drama. It's something that has pretty wide-reaching repercussions. Whether you're religious or not, um, there are concerns uh, about the spirit and about the soul and about our future and what we are. And uh, even if we are just here for the length of our lives, we have to make the most of those lives and, and be all that we can be. And I am not trying to recruit for the Marines. You're limping. I hear you're pregnant. Yeah. Lucy. 
Larry. N no, I know. I know what happened. I'm sure that when the end came, they, um, met it on their feet. And that's what they were sent out there to do, wasn't it? To stand. There's certainly a reason that Gary has gone on to become quite the movie star. Uh, again, the whole process was trying to cast people whose, whose faces said as much as their mouths did. I mean, eyes that reached deep into the soul, like Bridget's here, like Gary's here. Um, you know, it, it is all about capturing that in as visual a sense as possible. Again, the reflection motif that has, has run throughout the show is a very important one. And this coda having a, a whole group of people coming together in the same room was uh, an important one. Uh, a time-honored tradition of gathering your cast together for, for uh, final emotional uh, points. This was Steve's idea to do this little montage of the people who had died during the course of, uh, of their quest. And at first, um, Pat and I thought it was corny to do. And I remember you were resisting it, saying it was just too much. Yeah. But once it was put together. Yeah, once Pat assembled this and good. slowed it down to the half speed and everything, I, I just, it really worked for me. You know, uh, I am a sucker for emotion. And uh, the potency of this, I thought, was a, a great way to finish telling our story and reminding us of those people who did exceptional things uh, in the quest of an exceptional world. And it, it's a very hopeful ending. It's not the ending of the book, particularly the, uh, the longer version with the footsteps of uh, flag being discovered on an island but it really works for this. And the baby waves goodbye. And that's uh, Stephen King's The Stand.